We are um, on a two-year program to go through the entire Bible. So that means everyone reads about a dozen chapters a week in preparation for this class. So um, everyone, except our visitors, has read... And this week it was actually 13 chapters, although a six-verse chapter hardly counts. Um, um, and um, we'll, so what we do when we get in the class is we, we don't read the material, but we, we go through and discuss what, what it's about. So this is our outline we've been looking at uh, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and we are in the third round of the debate between Job and his three friends. And we'll, we'll cover that, and we'll also cover the interlude on wisdom and um, two of the three monologues, Job and Elihu, are all that we'll be doing um, this morning. We, um, in the first two chapters, we covered the question of why does Job obey God? And uh, Satan suggested that, well, it's because God pays Job to obey him, but God said it's because... Job respects God for who he is. And so that set up this big contest. Um, And who won the contest? God won the contest because Job proved faithful in spite of all that was happening to him. And the contest goes actually more than just two chapters. Job is, is really proving God right all the way through this debate as these um, friends try to beat him down. Um, he, he stays faithful to God and refuses to agree with their false uh, philosophy. So then, the rest of the book is covered, is de- it deals with this question of why is Job suffering? And for Job's friends, we're going to wrap them, them up to this morning, in fact, it's just a very short piece. Um, they start with the principle that God is just. I mean, who can argue with that? God punishes the wicked by making them suffer. God never makes the righteous suffer because that would be unjust. See, these are, these are some principles. The one, the one principle being built on the previous one and on. Well, since Job is suffering, he must be wicked because... God would never make a righteous person suffer because God is just. So, you see, to say otherwise we make God unjust. And so, the more Job proclaims his innocence, the more convinced they are that he is a very wicked person. Now, in fairness to the friends, we, I should mention that there are places where Job does go too far in his statements. Uh, and we learn that because of what God says to him in, in the last few chapters. And so some of their more becoming more and more convinced may well be for some, some of the things that Job says in reaction to what they're saying. It, it's, it's an unfortunate fact of human nature that when people get into a debate, both sides tend to say things more extreme than they would have ever said if they hadn't been in the debate. Speak, speak up. Of when Job speaks too um, strongly, um, I can't give you chapter and verse, 
but I can mention some, you know, to kind of paraphrase what he says. I mean, when he when he says that um, God had set him up as his target and and and, ha- and God was denying him justice, uh, and that God was turning uh, had turned his back on him. Um, I mean, you probably recognize though those thoughts. Um, it was not true that God had turned his back on him. Um, and you know when God when Job just said, well, you know God just God kind of ignores the wicked, just lets them do whatever they want. That was an extreme statement, which I don't think even he believed it in in the absolute sense. He was simply pointing out that you know your philosophy guys doesn't always hold out. He's like, you know, I can show you some bad people that really had some really good lives. Nothing bad ever happened to them to speak of. Now, that doesn't mean that the friends weren't right, that by and large, wicked people get punished. All of us have seen wicked people punished in this life. But we can also think of some of those exceptions, just like Job was pointing out. But Job just made some, you know, he did make some extreme statements too. Um, so, back to our outline. We're in the third round. At the very end, um, of the three friends, which number is Bildad? They always go in order. He's the second one, yes. Bildad is the second one. Well, does that bring up any odd thing about this third round? Uh, come in. Well, no, no. Yeah, we started in the middle of it. Number one was back in um, chapter 22. Eliphaz spoke. So we had Eliphaz. Now we have seconds Bildad. But does anyone notice anything unusual? Zophar didn't take his turn. The third guy. <laughs> in the third round, he doesn't speak. And I'll, uh, I'll try to point out where maybe he should have. <laughs> Um, all right, so let's look at Bildad. This is chapter 25, shortest speech of the whole book. Um, and, he, and he doesn't say much at all. Um, I mean, what's his basic argument in this chapter? How can someone be right? How can someone be right before God? Well, who can argue against that? Um, I mean, how can anyone be right before God in terms of um, absolutely clean and pure? Um, only God, as Jesus said to the, to the rich man when He came up to him, He said, only God is good. And that's exactly right. So, you know, Bildad is speaking the truth. But it doesn't answer the point. And, and that's, that's the issue. Um, I mean, to say that how can a man be right before God does not explain why Job is suffering. If, if, you, if you took Bildad's argument to its logical conclusion, Bildad should be suffering because how can he be clean before God? Eliphaz and Zophar, they should all be suffering. And as, as we see by the end of the book, they should have been suffering more than Job. <laughs> they were worse than he was. But no, I mean, Job was not clean in the sense that Bildad's talking here. But keep in mind what God said about him in chapter 1. He was faithful to God. Um, The big problem with Bill Dad's argument, though, is what's missing. 
Bildad refuses to back down. That he and his two friends have accused Job of sinning. They said, Job, you're suffering because you're sinning. And although he cannot answer Job's arguments, he, he refuses to take it back. And that's the, that's the primary point of, of this speech. Just to, you know, he's, he's in there saying, You are too. <laughs> and so notice how, um, how Job answers them. What a help you are to the weak. <laughs> this speech is dripping with sarcasm. How you have saved the arm without strength. What counsel you have given to one without wisdom. What helpful insight you have abundantly provided. <laughs> to whom have you uttered words and whose spirit was expressed through you? <laughs> and then Job... This is this at first sight it seems a little bit strange because in the rest of the chapter Job seems to be making the exact same argument that Bildad made it right above it. And I think the point that Job was trying to make is I understand God's greatness. I understand it at least as well as you do, and, and in fact Job's speech is a nicer one than Bildad's in that regard. I think it's he does a more eloquent job. And so he in verses five to fourteen, he just says a number of wonderful things about God, just great things. <clears throat> things God has done in, in history and um and he says in verse fourteen, Behold, these are the fringes of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him. What he is saying is Look at all these great things about God. This is like just the hem of His garment. There's just so much more. We, we only see just the slightest amount of God's greatness. That's what he's saying. Job understands God is great. There is no one else besides God. And then, in chapter 27, verse 1, it says, Then Job continued his discourse and said, And... I think it's reasonable to suggest that he paused a little bit there, because otherwise, why would he say he continued his discourse? Why would he? Why would he pause? <coughs> what? I'm looking for something else. All right. Well, no one's got. I think he's just reflecting on Yeah, right. Well, I think what you're getting at is that's probably where the other guy may have spoken. Yeah. But another, another Mr. Mobsbuck has a lot there. Okay, what's he saying? That is that uh, the, the uh, translator from Magnificus, that Bildad actually kept speaking for that first part of 26. That might actually continue on the same path. Well, God. The Bildad continues speaking? The Bildad speaking. Are you sure you understand, Brother Ma? I mean, because I mean, verse one says, "Then Job responded." I know it does, but I'm just uh, telling you what it said. Um, well, I mean, I do, there, there's a marginal note on twenty-six, verse one that says, "Literally responded and said." 
Yeah, which is almost always that. Yeah, almost every time that's the way it is. The, the, the translators leave out the and said because it's redundant. Okay. It says some scholars actually think that maybe a continuation of that speech on the omnipotence of God, this part having been misplaced in the process of transmission. For what can for what can be the reason for such a passage? So he says some scholars. He's not saying that's his view. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I'm. I'm aware. I mean, the truth of the matter is that you get you get all kinds of things with scholars kind of tearing things apart here. Um, and I've I've heard that there's even some some scholars that have tried to figure out. They've tried to take part of Job's speech and give it to Zophar because he's missing. <laughs> but but I think. The reason so far is missing is because the same reason Bildad's speech was so short. He's run out of things to say, and and so I I I don't think I don't think Job just kind of ran over him, you know, just without pausing, letting him have a chance. Uh, I think so far just uh, declined <laughs> to just to have another speech. So we come to chapter twenty-seven then, and. Uh, He comes. It, it appears that in the first few verses, he goes back and addresses Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz was in chapter 22. Eliphaz's speech was the harshest of any of the friends uh, in, in the whole three debates because um, Eliphaz in chapter 22, quote, figured out what Job's sins were. And he suggested a bunch of things in chapter 22 which were just very harsh. Um, and the only reason he figured these things out was because he figured for God to have punished Job as much as he was punishing him, what Job did had to be terrible. And so Job is coming back on this point and he says, As God lives who has taken away my right and the Almighty who has embittered my soul, for as long as life is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. What he's saying is, I have not behaved like you guys say I have behaved. I'm not gonna, I will not admit that. I'll hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me, reproach any of my days. Now, we've seen before that Job is not claiming to be sinless. He talked at one point when he was talking to God that God was visiting him with the sins of his youth. Um, like like any human being, he had sinned and he understood that. The issue was whether God was being fair in singling him out above everybody else on the earth to suffer the worst things imaginable. What had he done to deserve it? And he's saying he hadn't done anything to deserve it. And so then in chapter in verses seven through twenty three, Job agrees. With his friends, and this and this may be one of the sections that scholars would like to grab and hand it to one of the of his friends, because he he says almost the same thing the friends have been saying that God punishes the wicked people. Um, verse thirteen: This is the portion of a wicked man from God, and the inheritance which tyrants receive from the Almighty. And he goes and he lists, and it sounds a lot like what the friends have been saying. I, I, I'm certainly not willing to go and 
start cutting up the book of Job with scissors and start applying it to, to somebody else. Uh, Job said this. And the reason he said this was to show that he accepted the principle that God punishes the wicked, just like the friends were saying. The only problem is, he's not wicked and it doesn't work for him. <laughs> and I wonder whether it might have helped a little bit in the argument if he had made this statement earlier rather than here at the very end. Um, maybe they wouldn't have gotten quite so harsh if, if he could have agreed. But again, that's kind of the way debates go. Um, so, now we come to chapter 20, 28, and the scene changes. Yeah, Tracy. I was wondering, what was the um, answer to verse 27, verse 1? Then Job continued his discourse and said, well, alright, the, the answer, my guess, and just take it for this, my guess is that Job paused and waited for the third guy to speak. It was Zophar's turn. Zophar didn't speak, so Job continued his discourse. And he continued it all the way till the end. The three friends don't say another word the whole the rest of the book. So it's my guess. You can take it for what it's worth. Um, now in chapter 28, this is just a, a lovely chapter. Um, very elegant poetry. Um, and it's all about what? Wisdom. All about wisdom. Um, and, and, and of course, like you do oftentimes in poetry, you go the long way around it. Uh, and so he says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Now that's interesting. You know, and the, core, the reason he brings that up is because where's the mine for wisdom is what he's going to end up. But he has to go on about the mines for quite a long time. And it's really an amazing picture of ancient mining here. Uh, about how in verse 4 he sinks a shaft far from habitation forgotten by the foot they hang and swing to and fro far from it you can just picture them being lowered down by, on, on, by ropes and they're kind of swinging back and forth as they, they twack with their picks on, on the wall of the, this mine shaft the earth from it comes and, and they go on I won't read all this but it's, it's a very elegant uh, picture and then, and of course, when you think about it, it's just amazing that human beings are able to do that kind of thing. And I, and I think he's, Job is kind of is impressed with the, the great work that people go to to bring out these precious metals and gems from the earth. But, it, but in verse 12, but where can wisdom be found? And where is a place of understanding? And, and so he goes on and on like that. You know, all the, you know it's, it's worth more than gold and rubies and all this kind of thing. Um, and but nobody knows where to find it, and what's the answer? Where does wisdom come from? Yeah. From God. Verse twenty-three. God understands His way, and He knows His place, for He looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And so finally, in verse twenty-eight, to man He said, "Behold, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding." Now that sounds like another book, and one suggests where that. What's similar to that? Ecclesiastes. Yeah, the, the way the book of Ecclesiastes ends, you know, behold, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. It sounds like... And, and of course, this, you have the very same thoughts expressed in the book of Proverbs. Now, interestingly enough, 
Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are all part of what group of literature? Poetry and wisdom. And so, and Job, of course, is certainly in the, on the wisdom side, and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are again on, on the wisdom side. Um, so he's looking at where, where are we going to get wisdom? And in other words, how are we going to understand what, what happens to us? How can we explain life? And Job has a really major thing he wants to explain. You know, why am I suffering? And, and the answer is, God's the only one that knows it. He's because the treasures of wisdom are hidden with Him. Now, in chapter 29 then, Job again took up his discourse. There's another place where if we want, we could stick Zophar in. <laughs> he had two turns, <laughs> or two chances, but he didn't take either one. <clears throat> but Job changes approach again. Oh, that I were as in months gone by as in the days when God watched over me. And this is just so sad as you listen to him talk about what his life used to be. And then, and then the next chapter, what, it, what his life was at the time when he was speaking. And, and oh, you read the end of verse 5, and my children were around me. I mean, doesn't that touch your heartstrings? I mean, just, it's a poor guy. Um, and, and, it, and in the chapter, he talks about how he was respected. Why was he respected? He was a good person. That's why he was respected. They didn't respect him because he was rich. They respected him because he was good. In verse 15, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father of the needy and I investigated the case which I did not know. What's he talking about? Why is he investigating cases? He, that's right. He was a judge. He was one of the. He was probably the leading judge. In, in his in his community, and, and in verse twenty one, to me they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. People respected Job because he was a wise person. He showed his wisdom by his good behavior. You just, I mean, you have to be impressed with this. But chapter thirty starts with the word "but," and it's so sad. Now those younger than I mock me. Whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. I mean, he, Job was looking at a group of people who, who were just outcasts and, and, and who just they didn't live righteously. They they um, uh, they he just considered them pathetic, and just the children of these people, to the, the most the least of these people, despised Job. I mean, where does that put him on the social strata? Just right, you know, below dogs, almost. And he says in verse 9, Now I have become their taunt. I have even become a byword to them. They abhor me and stand aloof from me. They do not refrain from spitting at my face. Because he has loosed his bowstring and afflicted me, they have cast off the bridle before me. And... And he goes out and he just talks about how he suffers. Verse 16, My soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me and my gnawing pains take no rest. I mean, it's just so sad. And he closes out in verse 31, Therefore, my harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the sound of those who weep. 
That's a very poetic way to say it. it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, Rob. How long this went on? Well, no, no, it's not a matter of generation past while he was suffering like this. Um, it's a matter that th- these young children, their, their fathers, I'm sure, are still alive. But Job said. Yeah, but I, I mean, this could have happened in a matter of months, and, and everything that Job says is still true. Um, yeah. But. My man's wisdom tells me that it was a longer period of time. Just because the amount of suffering and the things that he described. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know of anything in the book of Job that will help on that. The only reference I saw to years was after he was. Right. Yeah, he he lived quite a few more years. Yes, um, but yeah, I don't know how long it lasted. I, I, the only thing thing I could suggest is the fact that his three friends came from a distance, back at a time when travel was slow. The news of Job's suffering had to first make its way to them. They had, then had to arrange with each other to meet at a certain time, and they and they came. I mean, clearly it had to be months. Whether it was years, I can't say that. So, uh, other questions? Yeah. All right. Um, finally, in chapter thirty-one, th- this is this is the climax uh, of Job's speech. I have made a covenant with my eyes. He begins. The whole chapter is a chapter about how. Job had been faithful in every area of his life. So, what was the covenant he made with his eyes? Not to look at woman. Right. He wasn't going to lust after woman. So he, he, he was putting fornication far away from him. And then in verse 5, if I walked with falsehood, and he goes on like that, he, he was never dishonest. Uh, he didn't use... Um, False scales, which was very common back in those days, um, and so on. Then in verse nine, um, he he deals with adultery. He, be, he had dealt with gazing at a virgin earlier. Now he deals with um, having adultery with his neighbor's wife, and he, he he hadn't done that. Verse thirteen, even the claims of his slaves, he was faithful towards. He understood God had made them as he had made. Him. Now that's a very unusual attitude when you think about it. People, usually if someone's down on the social strata, the people above them don't think they have any rights at all. But Job felt that his own slaves had rights with him and he always listened to them. Verse 16, the poor, if I have kept the poor from their desire. Um, so these were not people in his household. The slaves were part of his household. These are people in the community. But he saw them and took care of them. The orphan, the widow, the um, you know, he, if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, at the end of verse 20, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket, and he cursed himself if he has done any of these things, which of course he hadn't done. I mean, he was always very faithful, generous, took care of the widow, took care of the orphan, took care of the poor people. Then in verse 24, 
if I've put confidence in gold. Now that's amazing that, that he would have that kind of an insight. But he recognizes that would have been idolatry. And so he, this whole section is idolatry because he talks in um, verse 26, if I've looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor because people back then worshipped the sun and the moon, but not Job. Um, then in verse 29, he didn't hate his enemies. He didn't rejoice when bad things happened to his enemy. Um, in verse 31, he was hospitable to the strangers, the, the people traveling through. Um, and then in verse 33, have I covered my transgressions like Adam? Or in verse 34, have I feared the great multitude? What he's saying is, my life was an open book. I wasn't one thing in private and another thing in public. Um, in verse 35, oh, that I had one to hear me. He still wants to have this court case with God. He's gone through all of his life, everything he knows about himself, he's done right. He wants to have a court case with God. And then he comes back in verse 38 through 40 with he was honest in his business dealings. He was honest with the people he was renting his the land from. The words of Job are ended. <laughs> and that's finally the end of the speech. And the, the friends have nothing more to say about that. But somebody else does. <laughs> There's a guy, we didn't even know this guy was here. He's been there the whole time. What's his name? Elihu. Yeah. And I want to ask the question what are we going to make of Elihu? <laughs> Commentators have expressed wildly different views about this guy. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about commentaries that I've read myself. <clears throat> Everything from the voice of calm reason to an arrogant youth. <laughs> um, what are we going to make of him? And I, and I just mentioned this so that you'll, you'll understand that <clears throat> no one can be dogmatic on this matter when you have very smart, very devout people. And I'm talking about Christians that are commentators. Uh, L.A. Mott told me that Homer Haley took pretty much the very opposite view that L.A. takes about Elihu um, in Homer Haley's commentary. So when you have good people, smart people, taking very different views, it ought to move us to humility. I mean, when we look at this, I'm not saying don't have your own opinion. But I am saying be a little bit humble about that and realize that you might be wrong uh, given just how diverse are, are the views of, of people probably smarter than any of us who are here right now. They're just very diverse. So I want to give some of the arguments so that you can kind of help draw your own conclusions. In his favor is the fact that he does take a different approach to Job's suffering. Also in his favor is the fact that Job never attempts to answer him. And, and he did give Job a chance. He stopped. You know, Job, say what you want. And Job said nothing. So why? I mean, Job answered the first three guys. Why doesn't he answer Elihu? Apparently, now this is an inference, which is not completely a necessary inference, but it's an inference. Apparently, Job sees something different in what Elihu is saying. There's some value that is different from what the three friends are expressing. 
Then we notice that God does not rebuke Elihu along with the three friends. This is in chapter 40. It will be next week's lesson. Now, those who think that Elihu is an arrogant youth do believe that God was talking about Elihu in 38 verse 2 when He says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So they say, well, God did God did say, you know, Elihu, no, I don't think you're, you got the answer either. But I do want to suggest that He does offer additional insight into the purpose of suffering in this section. Each of us is going to have to decide, though, whether we think that answer is the final answer to the problem. So now let's look at his speeches. We'll we'll go through these chapters in the remaining time. In chapter 32, he spends a long time just saying that he's got a different solution to this problem. In chapter 33 then, he says in verse 6, Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. Why is he bringing this up about why, you know, Job, you don't have to be afraid of me? What's the point? He can argue with Job, and Job can argue with him, and Job doesn't have to be afraid like he would if he argued with God. Right. <clears throat> that was back in chapter 13, verse 21, Job had, had talked about this, how, you know, if I, if I do come before God in court, I'm just going to be terrified of Him and how can I have a discussion? And so Elihu says, hey, I'll stand in for God. And, and you know, you won't have to be afraid of me. And whether God authorized Him to do that is a different question. <laughs> but He's certainly offering. <clears throat> then, in verse 13, this is still chapter 33, why do you complain against Him that He does not give an account of all His doings? Elihu is going to suggest that God does give an account of His doings. And he, he suggests two different ways. The first is in a dream or a vision of the night. Um, and those were more common back in the Old Testament than they are in the New Testament. But in the Wednesday night class, uh, Paul got a vision of a man of Macedonia in the night. So it, it's not confined strictly to the Old Testament. But he doesn't come back to that. Although... I think it was Eliphaz in his very first speech that talked about how he got this vision in the night. Um, I don't know whether Elijah was trying to connect that or not. But then, um, he says in verse 19 that man is also chastened with pain on his bed. I believe this is still... Elijah was saying this is still God's way of explaining to man. It's God's way of communicating to man. Now, so this is a, a step forward from the three friends. The three friends say that, Job, you're suffering because God's punishing you. You deserve what's happening. They also say, well, if you repent, maybe God will take it away. But Elihu was suggesting that the punishment itself was intended for good, not just, or the suffering was intended for good. It wasn't just for punishment. It was intended to turn a person back from his sin. And so, in parentheses, that makes God the friend of Job rather than his enemy, as, as, he, as the friends had believed. <clears throat> so then, in chapter 34, um, he says, For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. 
And, and he says, Job, you're wrong to accuse God of acting unfairly toward you. And he explains, in, starting in chapter 34, verse 10, that it's just inconceivable that the God who created and rules the earth would be unjust. And so he talks quite a bit about you know, who God is. And then in verse 21, he moves another step forward. His eyes are upon the ways of a man and he sees all his steps. God knows everything. So that God cannot be unjust by accident because he doesn't know. I mean, he knows exactly what's happening. And indeed, God does not need to have a court case to try any of us. A court case is where you bring out the evidence. God doesn't need that. You don't have to hire a lawyer with God. It won't do you any good anyway because He knows everything. Jesus said the very hairs of your head are numbered. So now we move on to chapter 35. And He's still talking about the things Job said about God that he thinks is wrong. Do not think this is a, do you think this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit will I have more than if I had sinned? And so his answer is, God is so far above us that He is not affected by what we do. Whether we do good or whether we do bad, it doesn't affect God. And I would like to suggest that there is a sense in which that's correct, but not entirely. Um, in fact, Elihu is not the first to bring this up. The three friends have already brought this up in the past. You may recall this, this same argument. But in the New Testament, we learn that while what Elihu says may well be true, that, that God is above us, what I do does not have to affect God. God chooses to be affected by what I do. Um, uh, when Jesus went to the cross, clearly God was being affected by what I did. And, and God has chosen to be affected by His creatures. Now that's something that it's impossible for us to even understand how the infinite God could be like that. Yeah, John. And the fact that God made sentient beings implies that uh, He cares about what the scriptures do. Yes, although there's plenty of philosophers that don't think that. But <laughs> I would agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of people whose theory is that, well, if there's a God, He created the world and just kind of let it go. You know, and that, that's a, a philosophy called deism. It was very popular back in the time of the Revolutionary War. Some of our great founding fathers were, in fact, deists. You know, there's a God, but you know, He doesn't do anything with us. He doesn't concern Himself with us. Um, now, Elihu is not saying that. I mean, clearly, Elihu is saying, "Well, you know, your suffering is from God. God's trying to teach you something, Job." But he's also trying to explain to Job that you know, God's not affected by things you do, whether good or bad. And I'm suggesting I'm not I'm not convinced uh, of that. How is say God is affected How? Because he sent Jesus to the, his death on the cross. I mean the Son of God went to the cross 
because of what we did. If we hadn't done it, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Now that's just one example, but it's the ultimate example. Yes, our sins put Him on the cross. So, it's not true to say what, what God is not affected whether you do good or bad. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But it is true from, from this, well, another standpoint, it is true that God doesn't need me. I mean, that, that certainly is true. And for me to stand up and say, wow, you know, if, I don't, if I'm not the one, nobody's going to do it. I mean, um, Esther's cousin had an answer to that. said, if you don't speak up, God, someone will deliver. He didn't mention God, but deliverance will come from some other place, and you and your house will perish. What, 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 what um, Mordecai was saying to Esther was, the whole world doesn't hang on you, but it is an opportunity. You have an obligation to meet that opportunity. And, and I need to understand, there's times when I'm in a position that no one else is in. And I better act. But, if I choose to be unfaithful to God and not act, it won't mess God up in the least. <laughs> He'll be able to deal with it just fine. So, both sides of the coin on this Elihu <laughs> issue. Alright, let me see. I was in chapter 35. Um, this is a very interesting argument here. Verse 9, because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry for help because of the arm of the mighty. Now, you, you listen to that and you say, that's good, that's what they should do. But no one says, where is God my Maker who gives songs in the night? What Elihu is saying is very deep here. What he's saying is, a lot of people, all they want is what God gives them. In parentheses, that's what Satan said. And what Elihu was saying is, what we need to do is say, I want God Himself. Now, you, those of you who were here four weeks ago when I preached the last time, will remember that's exactly what I preached about. The fact that God wants us to delight in Him. Not just delight in His gifts, but delight in God Himself. And that's what Elihu was saying here. People cry out to God because they don't like what He's doing to them, but they don't want God. They just want to have a happy life. The two are not the same. So, then in chapter 36, in the first ten verses, he says that God gives people suffering to teach them. And so in verse 11, there's two possible... Outcomes for what they teach, for what God teaches. If they hear and serve Him, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasure. If they learn what God is teaching, great. On the other hand, in verse twelve, if they do not hear, terrible. So, the suffering is not necessarily judgment; it's instruction, and and we need to pay attention. What this what this leaves out in my judgment is the fact that. It doesn't it still doesn't answer Job's situation. What was there for Job to repent of when, when God put all this on him? Not once in the entire book do we ever learn 
of a sin Job had committed that God was trying to instruct him out of. The only things Elihu brings up are things Job said after he started sinning. Which I don't think he would have said if, it had, if the suffering hadn't come. So, it seems a little bit unfair for God to try to teach him with suffering what he hasn't done yet. Um, I'm do- so I'm not convinced that Elisha has the final answer. Um, but I do think that what he says is instructive for us today. Because there are, there, every one of us, when we suffer, there are things we can learn and ought to learn. And, and we need to go to God and ask Him for the instruction. God, what would You have me to learn in this? And some of that learning is learning to accept what God does, even though we don't always enjoy it. That's part of, of one thing, what some of the things we learn from suffering. Alright, um, i got to move on here. Cause I won't, but I, actually, I'm almost done because the last chapter and a half is pretty easy. Um, so then in verses 17-23, through he again urges Job to repent. Repent of the, of the false charges he's made against God. Then starting in verse 24 and going on through the end of Elihu's speech, he talks about the greatness of God. The greatness of God is seen in what? Well, no, it's more specific than that. In a thunderstorm. That's really what he describes in the end of chapter 36 and into chapter 37. It's a thunderstorm. And if you think about it, if it, I mean, of course, there's thunderstorms and then there's thunderstorms. But if you think of the, some of the really great thunderstorms you've seen, doesn't that leave you in awe of God? Just astounding. Just astounding power. Um, and, and so that's what he describes in, in a very poetic way. Um, trying to help Job to, uh, to understand you're not dealing with a human being here. You're dealing with somebody who has amazing wisdom and amazing power. Also, thunder comes from the body. So. That, right. Yeah. And, and of course, God used these same things to, for, to indicate His own presence. Like when, well, very often, God in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New, God would thunder. To, to, and, and his voice sounded like thunder. It was just a terrifying voice when they heard him at Mount Sinai. Yeah. And what's very interesting is at the end of the description, at the end of verse twenty, chapter thirty-seven, verse twenty-four, this says, "Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind." Well, where do you have whirlwinds? In the middle of thunderstorms, you know, just really major thunderstorm. And, and and so it sounds like, and and a lot of commentators have suggested this that. What Elihu was describing was what was actually happening around them. That off in the distance, Elihu saw these clouds coming in, and he starts that that leads his mind to describe that. And then the, the storm gets closer, and the lightning and the thundering, and 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 the the um, I think he even mentions hail in this. Uh, and then finally, there's a tornado, and God speaks out of the midst of that tornado, and that's what we're going to be uh, be de- dealing with. Um, next time. Any final questions or thoughts? Yeah, Tracy. Yes, I'll give you a copy. Sure. All right. Appreciate everyone's help this morning.